welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 226. I'm your host, Derek Moore. With me once again is my semi-permanent co-host, Jay Pestricelli, CEO of Zega Financial. Welcome back, Jay. Thank you, Derek. Glad to be back. I didn't even miss a week. I'm here. You did? Well, I'm just welcoming you in general. Welcome back to the program. Uh, yeah, no, yeah, just it's good to talk to you. You know, you are sort of the co-host, and I joke semi-permanent because you're not on every episode, but usually you welcome somebody back who's been a guest before and then comes back, but you're sort of on all the time. So I take back my welcome, Jay. You're unwelcomed, but you're back. I'm just back. You're going to deal with it. You're just back. You know what's back? Not short-term volatility, Jay. I mean, we saw a VIX, a handle of a 12 this year, right? So we saw the VIX go below 13 for the first time in a long time this week, didn't we? I mean, we have to go back to what? 2021? During the all-time highs? Was it Was it that? Or no, uh, early 2022, right? No, I think, you gotta keep, I think you gotta go back to 2020. I think like February or late 2019, like pre-pandemic. We see this though. And I mean, normally when you have a bear market, you, you and I were trading in 2008, 2009. We're trading 2000, or at least I was, 2000, 2001, 2002. But when volatility jumps and you have distress in the markets, a bear market, you have this higher volatility regime. That stayed high for a long time. And I mean, a lot of people think the VIX is broken, but yeah, I know we, we watch so many different points of the VIX. I don't know if you want to get into that a little bit, but there's some interesting stuff that happened in the very short-term VIX readings. Yeah, I mean, I, I've heard the, you know, the VIX is broken argument. I don't even know what that means. It's an equation. Like, how is it broken? I guess the 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 assumption here is like, oh, it's not that good of an indicator, you know, going forward, right? The VIX, you know, used to kind of tell you when there was a lot of fear in the market or when people were uh, really comfortable with the market. But I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that at all, actually. I love that there's, you know, futures on the VIX. I love that there's options on the VIX. And I love that those options create their own set of indexes like the VVIX. Like this is all uh, actually really great data. Uh, I definitely don't think the options market is a bad indicator of what's happening kind of under the surface. Right. And, you know, Derek, we, this is no insult to everybody, but we, we, as, as I'm about to insult everybody, right. That's how you, uh, you start the sentence before you're not going to insult people. But generally speaking, right, you, you you think of bonds as big money. You think of options as the smart money. And a lot of people would say stocks is the dumb money, right? Because it's just anybody can buy and sell a stock, right? So I'm, I don't necessarily think that, but I'm just saying you. I do know that the options flow comes with a uh, an additional degree of sophistication. I do know that the pricing of the options every day is not you know randomly set by what somebody's willing to pay for it. It's actually set through models and and uh, and Greek data points, right? So, uh, and the market makers will adjust based on outlook. So it is a little more of a sophisticated trade. And so why I'm going into all of this about you know is the VIX broken? Is the you have to ask is the options market broken? And I would say absolutely not. We're seeing more option volume uh, every year. And that's data that we really like to dig into and dive into and analyze. So, um, you know, those who say the VIX is bro- 
say the VIX is broken, they just are not looking at the right thing. I agree, Jay. I mean, the VIX is doing what it said it's going to do. And it said that it's it's a 30-day measure of, and it's spot volatility, as, as you and I both know. And here, here's a public service announcement, kids at home. If you're trading VIX options, you're not trading options on the VIX that you see on TV. That is the spot fix. It's untradeable. Cannot trade that. It's an index and you see it on TV and it measures what it measures. When you, when you see options, those are on VIX futures. And when you're buying an, an option in, let's say, July versus an option in December, you are buying an option on a completely different underlying. You're buying option on, let's say, the July VIX future versus the December VIX future. So let me get the public service announcement out of the way. The other thing I would tell you, I think with the exception of one one day a month, though, right? They eventually close together, right? Aha, uh-huh. they do. And it's always, does the VIX future come to the VIX spot or does the VIX spot go to the VIX future? That's the unknown, right? <laughs> but at one day, <laughs> for a brief moment, they are the same. Until the final settlement, early morning rotation the next morning, which who knows what happens there. All right, so, yeah. but right, no, right. I mean, the argument is that the reason it's broken is because people aren't necessarily buying the one-month options anymore. They're buying zero-data expiration. They're, dying, they're buying a weekly option. We watch all these, Jay, and I'm going to give you a quick data point. The implied volatility on a 10-day option that we watch is you know, 9.3% implied volatility. So Jay, you mentioned the VIX just broke 13. Over, you know, very near term, some of the things we watch within option chains, the volatility is dirt low, dirt cheap. I guess dirt cheap. In fact, it's so cheap, that's the lowest reading we've seen since, I don't know, September of 2021. So think about that. The, the short term, we're talking over the next 10 days. What that's telling me is, there is zero fear, at least there was as of yesterday, will probably be higher today. There's zero fear in the market in the near term, right? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I always like to say the speculation uh, either way is low when implied volatility is low, right? Implied volatility, you know, it's, it's options are interesting. I will not go into a dissertation on implied volatility. But options, you know, you could get, I, I think it's one of the only ways you get an emotional reaction to market pricing. And that is reflected in the implied volatility because things like the underlying price, the amount in the money, times to expiration, those things are all known facts, which you don't know. The thing that makes options expensive or cheap is really what the implied volatility is. And by the the name itself, implied, meaning, hey, people are willing to pay more because they think the market will move more. Or hey, it's low because people aren't as speculative and don't think the market will move as much. So the implied amount of market movement, meaning the implied volatility, is lower in that scenario. So I always like to call it, like there's any way to gauge the emotional mindset of the market, it's in the implied volatility uh, uh, of options. And you're right, Derek, like what it's saying here is there's not a lot of fear. People are not buying bets against this market. People aren't taking a short-term speculative risk or even one day to, to 10 days, right? That whole range, it's all low. Um, but they're also not betting on a big move up, 
right? Which also says, yeah, this market's probably, you know, going to sit in this range for a little while. By the way, that's just what's implied in the options. It's not what you and I are saying. That's what the options are telling us if you're to actually digest this below 10% implied volatility on a 10-day option. We look here too. I know you and I look at a lot of the ratios, ratios between different points on the volatility curve, different time to expiration on, let's say, you know, options chains. And one of the things that struck me is on a relative basis, how low the very short-term volatility got to even 30 or, or a couple months out or six months out. It's, uh, you know, every, I think more and more, especially on the retail side, but advisors and, and people manage money are aware of the, you know, the bond curve and the inverted yield curve and things like that. Not a lot of stuff is written or put on about the implied volatility curve. And, you know, today we're taping this on Friday. The markets were, were down today. I, I was saying last night when I was running these numbers, it wouldn't surprise me if the market sold off tomorrow without even looking at the futures or anything. Because when you start to see some of these relationships shift, it's, it's contrarian in nature, Jay. Yeah. Okay. So when you say contrarian in nature, you mean that, hey, when you see this kind of uh, this indicator, right, of things are kind of, I like to call it the coiling spring, right? It could be the, 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 the trigger or maybe the, that's not the trigger because I don't think that tail wags the dog. It's more of an indication that there was, there's waiting, right? There's waiting to take action. And I think there, I think that's right where there's a lot of waiting to take action either up or down here, but you're right. Like from time to time, when you see that the, the VIX really come down, there's a lot of folks that use that as a contrarian indicator. And you and I have talked about that in the past, and there's an area where it is contrarian, and then an area where he goes, nope, it's for real. The market's really going to be, you know, comfortable at this level for a while, right? So it's the, it's hard to gauge that history. We, of course, use metrics for that, right? Um, I think there a long time ago, I'm thinking back to, it must have been, I'm thinking like 05, 06, when you and I were doing work together uh, and we talked about the VIX, you found a study that said, you know, when the market, when the VIX dips below 13, that's significantly, uh, statistically significant to the point that it then stays below 13 for a while, or it stays below 20 once it's gone below 13, right, from being above it. Like there's a period of time that it takes. So because because the market is sanguine, it's just here, right? It's just, that's okay. But uh, we haven't closed below 13 yet. I don't think, Derek, right? I've seen lows of 13. I don't know if we closed below it. But do you, uh, you recall the study that I'm talking about that you and I have referenced in the past? No, by the way, it did close below. Sorry. And I, by the way, I sent you a note about this. Of course, I remember it closed at 12.91 on uh, Thursday, the 22nd. So confirm it today. But, you know, interesting that sometimes it's contrarian. Sometimes it actually tells you it's right and it's going to be right for a little while. One of the mistakes, I think a lot of brand new option traders, and, and as I said at the open, if you're trading options on VIX, like, you really have to know what you're doing there. But it's the idea of, hey, the VIX is really low. 
I'm going to buy call options on the VIX. And again, you may not even know what, what you're buying on the underlying for. But it's, it's this thing. It's just because the VIX is low doesn't mean it, it's going to go up. And 2017 always is the year where a lot of people lost a lot of money trading VIX options because VIX went from 13 to 11, 11 to 10. I think it got under 10 at one point. I mean, this is the 30-day VIX. I'd have to go back and look. But certainly uh, it was right in the neighborhood of 10. That is really low. And if you're buying, if you're saying, hey, when the VIX goes low, I'm going to put in some sort of a, a bet or a trade that makes money if the VIX goes up. Number one is you have to be right on which VIX, you know, which VIX future you're buying options on. Number two is you have to be right on the timing. And then you have to be right on the fact that there's going to be a, a raise in VIX. It's uh, a lot of money gets lost on that because you're basically saying that the VIX is wrong. The, the low VIX is indicative of, of there's going to be an explosion in the VIX, a sell-off in the markets. And it's just not the case that we've seen these relationships. I think the other one, Jay, that is a little bit misleading sometimes is the put-call ratio. And I noticed something the other day where there was a jump in the, uh, the put-call ratio, but it was a big option expiration. And sometimes when, when you have these big expirations, just open interest coming off where it wasn't rolled or it wasn't reestablished, you can get these little blips in there. But I, I go back to just because put open interest is, is rising doesn't mean that people are buying puts. It could be they're, they're selling puts to open. They're selling a, a cash-covered put or something like that. But, um, you know, and, and like CNN's fear and greed, there's this fear and greed index. And I don't know. I mean, it's... Do you think that there's validity in that still? I mean, do you think all those metrics, and maybe you can kind of just touch on a few of them, but is that helping people? I don't know. I mean, it feels like it's, I mean, what, what are you supposed to do with that, right? When you hear information that the market is greedy, right? So so just a little background on what this thing is, right? It's It takes one, two, three, four, five, six, like six or seven data points and tells you if they're indicative of, people being greedy or people being fearful, right? The two emotions of the market. And right now, right, we are on the edge of being extremely greedy, according to this index, right? It's a 74. At 75, I believe, it's extreme greed. So we're at the greed, the top end of greed. Um, but there's a lot of data points here like market momentum, stock price strength, the breadth of stocks, the put call uh, options, put call ratios in there, market volatility is in there. So the things that we like when it comes to options are in there. There's some stuff there about junk bond demand um, and even some safe haven demand. So when when you look at these data points, like what what am I, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with this information, right? I mean, the old adage goes, you should be uh, fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful, right? So is this telling you that the masses are wrong and you should be fearful because we're just about to go, you know, to the kind of extreme range on this. Maybe, maybe, but you know, uh, does it fear, does it feel fearful in the market right now? No, it feels like people are buying up right with both hands. And that's what the greedy indicator is coming from. I do, you asked me specifically about, you, you mentioned put and call options, you know, that data that we're looking at here, when you look at their uh, uh, put call ratio, 
is really not what we're observing in the market, is it? Right. Like it's it's like trending below one, the put to call ratio. And that is considered to be extremely greedy because it means that people are there's less volume in the puts. Right. That means that that typically would mean there's less people, you know, putting on hedges. Right. Or buying protection. So, um, it, you know, it's considered bearish when this ratio is this low because it's kind of a contrarian indicator. I don't know, Derek, when we observe the puts and calls, I actually don't think that number is accurate. I think there's a different market out there that w- that we could be looking at, right? That's maybe part of your point. Well, we're sort of we're not going to we're not going to get into too much of our uh, our secret sauce, but yeah, we look at different metrics and I'm not seeing that. We're not seeing that. We're not seeing this, you know, I I I'm eyeballing it here and it's uh, the put call ratio they have on here is less than less than one. It's less than 0.8. That's not what I'm seeing. I'm seeing more, you know, the put open interest is, is probably around double the call side, at least the, you know, the way I look at it. So yeah, I mean, and I, but I go back to like, let's say you start out with just a, a one equal calls, equal puts. Okay. Let's say it goes to two to one. That could be everybody selling out of the money puts. And that is open interest. When, when an options contract is put on to open, so you can buy to open, you can sell to open, that would increase the puts versus calls and vice versa. If all of a sudden you have a ton of people selling covered calls to open, that would increase the, the call open interest. So to me, if you want to talk about something that's broken with, maybe it's the put call ratio. There you go, Jay. I said it. Okay. Well, it's always hard to know with open interest if it's buying and selling and, you know, if it's, you know, yeah, you're right. It could be a lot of open short puts. We sell puts all the time, right? It's it's hard to sell puts, by the way, in this environment with volatility so low, right? Which also might be another reason why an indicator like this would show less put volume, right? People that use puts for income, a lot of people use puts for income or entry into stocks at lower rates to get paid while they're waiting, uh, almost like a limit order. It's not really, but, you know, people would coin it that way. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, Derek, it's, it's, it might be the put call ratio that just doesn't really capture what's going on with, uh, uh, with, the, with, with, with the options are telling us. But I think things like implied volatility are a better indicator of whether people are more speculative uh, or, uh, think things are going to be sideways for a while, right? And so I think that one, I don't think you could fake, right? That one, I don't think can be misinterpreted when people aren't willing to pay up for options up or down. It tells you they're thinking that things are going to be sideways. By the way, if if people think the, the 30-day VIX is broken, okay. The CBOE has multiple VIX out there. They have a nine-day, they have different one, they have all different VIXs, indexes, which look at different, and then they have a zero-day or a one day, I think they have a zero day now, VIX index. So SIBO has plenty of them out there that if you want to go look, you can go to their website and you know they, they've got information there. So, all right, Jay, uh, I do want to transition to this. I'm going to put this in the camp of investing is hard a lot of times. And what you think will happen may not happen. And this is why you and I always said, just buy, be hedged, be buffered. Because you, you don't really know what's going to happen. And I've had two good examples of this. Jay, would it surprise you if I told you that 
XHB, which is the uh, uh, the State Street ETF home builders from our friends at State Street. Their holdings contain Lennar, Carrier, Pulte Group, DR Horton. Okay, that is up forty three percent off the the low in, in October. Forty three percent, Jay. Do you know anyone who's on TV saying, "I know interest rates are going up, uh, housing is going to crash"? So the, let's buy the home builders. Yeah, we got generational high inflation, so costs, of course, are going to be up. It's hard enough to find people in the workforce uh, to do the work. Um, people, interest rates are going to go up, or they're going up, so mortgages are going to cost more. No, all of those things I would say would make it difficult for home builders to turn a profit. But here we are, Jay, up forty-three percent, and I think it's Plus up. Uh, yeah, twenty-five. I would be surprised. It's probably up twenty-three percent at least year to date. Go figure. Like th- this is if you any if you just want an example of how it how difficult it is to try and pick this, and I'll bet you a lot of people were betting against this, and it's hard. And but they might be right. But their timing might be off. I don't know. So, I think in hindsight, it's a little explainable, right? But back in October, I would have never thought this, right? This is the whole, you're kind of stuck in your mortgage, so inventory is low, right? When I say stuck in your mortgage, you don't want to get out of your three or maybe two and seven eighths or three and a half percent mortgage and moving into a seven percent one. So, you just, you're kind of stuck. You got a good deal on your house. Your property value is up, but you probably can't, you know, get into a good one that you like. Uh, so you end up staying here. So inventory stays low. So home builders have to build, right? I mean, maybe that's what it is, right? Meeting the the demand, uh, and it was a supply shortage, and maybe they charge a little extra because they know what the equivalent would be to uh, buy, you know, an existing home. So, look, I think in hindsight it's explainable, but if we were talking, you know. Six, nine months ago, I don't think that was anybody was thinking that was the case, right? It was like, okay, the Fed is going to break the housing market uh, as the first thing that they can impact by raising rates. Probably not the greatest idea to be in home builders. Turned out that was that would have been wrong. The other aspect of this, uh, so Lizanne over at Schwab tweeted out a chart, existing one-family home sales median price. This is year over year percent change. And the most recent one was negative 3.4% uh, at the, the best of, you know, the, the run up uh, looks like maybe 2020, 2021, they were up over 25% year over year. I'll just point out, if you would have told everybody that home prices on a year over year basis would be down 3.4% only, that's probably a surprise, you know, going on the heels of the home builders. And I think, Jay, you hit it. It's there's not a lot of inventory when you don't have supply and there's demand. There you go, right? Supply demand. It's like economics. Exactly economics. One more thing, Jay, on the uh, and I don't know if this is bullish or bearish, but I don't know if you've noticed recently there have been some investment banks who were pretty bearish and coming into the year. I don't know if you've seen that, Jay. Were you were you aware of that? I don't know if you saw that. Might have heard that. Uh... Yeah, I might have heard that the the, the the banks were pretty bearish, like 27 out of 28 banks were pretty skittish about the market this year. 
Well, they also predicted a recession at the end of 2022, in 23, some now are pushing it to 24. All right. So here's what I was going to bring up, Jay. December 27th, MarketWatch had a a story that said Wall Street expects S&P to finish 2023 at 4,000 after missing the mark by the widest margin in their predictions on in 2022 since 2008. In other words, they thought the market would be up in 2022. It was down. uh, So their 2023 target was 4,000. Jay, now that the market went up, I'm shocked. Uh, One investment bank, uh, here's an example. So Goldman Sachs uh, said they moved their target from 4,000 to 4,500. I've also read, you know, a lot of investment banks have moved their target. And by the way, that's fine. If they have new information, they should adjust their targets. It shouldn't be so rigid to to say, no, 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 we're we're there. But I don't know if this is bullish or bearish. Like, is it thrown in the towel a little bit? Well, I think it's a little, you know, you can be wrong for a while and then you have to make some adjustments and reassess. I think six months later, um, you know, the, the, the market has given some people something different to think about versus, you know, big recession and hard landing. Uh, I don't know. Like, you know, the, the, we change outlook all the time and, you know, it, it can happen that they're wrong. The question is though, is it, you know, too late, right? You're wrong in the beginning of, uh, you know, 2022, and then you turn out to be wrong in 2023. They're just going to be wrong again with that call. Look, eventually they're going to be right here. But uh, where, where did they adjust to? You said 4,500 yeah, right, from right. 4,000, mm-hmm. right? Is that kind of, a, yeah. I, I, you know, they're probably right to make that adjustment. The question is, are they late, right? I mean, it's uh, how much value is that going to be? I think, I think analysts get criticized all the time for, you know, kind of catching up and adjusting based on changing markets. But that's a hard job. It's like you said, investing is hard. Predicting where the market is going to go is hard. Right. We really don't do it. I mean, it's, you know, most of our strategies are all about get long, keep yourself protected. Try not to make calls on the market because even the best, the people that get paid Boku bucks get it wrong all the time. Do you remember back in, this is probably 98, 99, the tech analyst for Merrill Lynch, uh, was it Michael Kerlack? And if you asked me that again, I wouldn't remember the name, but I, I believe it's that, uh, that was the gentleman's name. He was, when all those stocks were trading on, you know, 8 million times PE or had negative earnings. And some people were saying, you know, we shouldn't look at earnings. We should look at page views. We should have... Instead of PE ratio, it should, it should be like uh, PP ratio or PV, PPV. I don't know what I just said, page views. So he, I remember he was, he kind of made the case where the more these stocks went up, like the more they sold, the more money they lost because their, their cost of sales and all this stuff. And I remember reading that, you know, some of the brokers at Merrill Lynch were not happy with him. Because, you know, he was just bearish. And so he wasn't wrong. He was just early. And I, to your point, Jay, I think it's tough for an analyst because if they're wrong and, and people miss out, they kind of get blamed. If they're late, they get blamed. And timing is the thing that you can never do. Even in the movie, uh, The Big Short, Michael Burry, you know, he was right on the housing collapse. 
he was early on his timing. He was short in 2007 and lost money before he made a ton of money. So, oh yeah, no, that's that's a great that's a great anal- uh, analogy here, right? Where um, sometimes you're just early. You know, usually, I mean, that's just another way of saying you're wrong for now when you say you're early. Um, but that's okay. You could still eventually be right. Hopefully, the eventually doesn't break you, right? What's that other adage? The market has the ability to be irrational longer than you have the ability to stay uh, solvent. So, uh, yeah, you got to be careful, right? That's why you got to, things like that, you got to be able to withstand, you know, the market might move against you for a little while. But it's, it's great analogy. If you haven't seen that movie, definitely watch that movie. All right, Jay. Uh, last thing I was going to bring up, and do you remember the Dave Letterman they used to run that segment? They said uh, they'd bring out like somebody dressed in a in a bear costume with a chainsaw and say, "Is this something?" I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> no, that <laughs> okay. sounds funny. So, is this something? Uh, Bespoke put out a piece. They said. S&P, so let me kind of set this up because the, the audience can't see what we're looking at. And it's the cumulative return since January 3rd of 2022. So that's when the market made its, all, its last all-time high. And what they did was they said, imagine instead of just buying the S&P 500 index, you only owned it in the first half hour or you owned it from... 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern. So that's the middle of the day. Or you only bought the market and held it for the final hour. Or you just buy and held. And according to Bespoke, uh, and I'll, I'll quote their thing, since the S&P's last all-time high, the prior close to the first... Okay, so you buy on the prior close then. So Prior close to the first half hour of trading has accounted for essentially all of the market's decline. And I'll just rank these and then you can kind of come in on this. So your best performance would be just owning the market in the middle of the day. Second was the final hour. Uh, third was buy and hold. And the worst was the first half hour. Is this anything? Uh, Alyssa, I think it's it's interesting. We have definitely seen this trend. You know, there's some of our strategies, right? We put money to work every day. We trade every day. So there's plenty of times just waiting out. The first half hour has definitely made sense for us on entries. Um, It's not something that we deliberately time, but it's definitely something that we observe. We do have a handful of strategies that have a pretty short time horizon on things, and we will take this into into account. But quite frankly, Derek, when when I look at this, I was... I was a little surprised, right? Because the final hour and the first hour are always supposed to be where all the action is. And then the middle of the day always seemed to just kind of, you know, lag on, right? Uh, they just linger throughout the day until the end. Um, and there's a lot that has to do with things like fund flows and uh, uh, stuff like that, that I think might be impacting on this. I just I, look, I think it's really interesting. If you bought every day at 10 o'clock and sold every day at three o'clock, you would do better than just buying and holding the market. You know, it's that's it's I don't know what the, what you could do with this. Right. We're certainly not telling people to go to one day intraday trades as a strategy. But uh, it's interesting. I, I will I will comment on one thing. Right. There is a lot. But maybe a lot of folks don't know. And maybe you've heard it on TV where there's a lot of 
indication of what the, I'm making air quotes, market on close orders look like, right? Which is, you know, at the end of the day, um, there's a whole bunch of options, not options, a whole bunch of orders that are going to fire right at what the closing price of stocks or indexes are. And I never really understood that. I understood that you could, you know, have a, understand that there's a bias there because the market makers kind of gather the orders. They're told that, hey, you, I want you to buy right at the close or I want you to sell right at the close. And it turns out a lot of that has to do with things like ETFs and mutual funds that mark their value and uh, mark the, the ebbs and flow of the cash within those funds right at the close. And so, you know, you want to, if you're, you know, if you're a buyer and, uh, you know, you've been doing creates and you've added to your funds all day, you want to get marked on those orders right at the end of the day, because that's when your fund gets priced, right? So you don't want any slippage between the end of the day and say the one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock hour. You want to get filled because that's where your price is at the end of the day and you get, you know, your fund gets marked. So I think there's a little bit now because of the continued flow into funds like ETFs. Uh, I think some of that has to do with that. Um, but look, I don't, I don't know if there's too much you can take away from it. It's just an interesting market dynamic, right? Hey, if you're thinking of buying, maybe it behooves you to wait till 10 o'clock before you do it. I don't know. I think there was a fifth one missing. And that first half hour could be buy at the open, hold for the, th the half hour. But buying right at the end of the day and then holding through the first half hour You've got overnight risk, but I don't know, Jay, with this though, this, you know, 2022 was a really different quote unquote bad market than 2020 or 2008, 2009, because 2022 was pretty orderly. We didn't have any crazy, you know, 8% gap down mornings were lock limit down on futures on a Sunday night. None of that stuff really happened. And the thing I remember is, you know, in 2020, remember March of 2020, Jay, where you'd see them just hammer the close, right? We'd say, ah, the market's up and it's just, it's not going to hold the close. So I guess in a way, this doesn't surprise me that the, the final hour wasn't worse because it was an orderly market. I mean, it's just different, right? Yeah. Look, I could see the first half hour, like panic selling at an open when people are just ready to get out fine. I could see that happens, right? Like, okay, I'm out, especially like last year, you'd have, you know, you could have some big, you know, moves like that. But, you know, the whole thing in the middle of the day, it's just an interesting dynamic, Derek. <laughs> Thanks for pointing it out. I don't know if we could do too much of it. <laughs> I don't know if it's something. I don't know if it's something. Um, by the way, Bespoke also had a quote said, and I, I don't know if this is true or not, the old saying is that the dumb money trades at the open while the smart money trades at the close. You were just talking about the market on close orders. I don't know what to do with that, that quote, but all right, we won't do anything with it. Well, well no, no, no. We're, we're, we should stop calling people smart and dumb. You know, like that's, even though I started it, I want to not do that. I think, I think it sort of switches. And I think every investor and in every institution sometimes does quote unquote smart things and dumb things. But I also think that given the opportunity, the retail investor has the, the chance to, to be the smart money. 
And I think one of the best ways to look at that is look at people's 401ks. Like, I don't think people are trading in and out of their 401ks. They're probably buying indiscriminately uh, all the time, anytime they get paid. And I don't think they probably trade out of their 401k or they're, they're less apt to do that. At times, though, you see, you know, people panicking and, and selling and staying in cash for years and then missing the first 400% up, you know, and those types of things. But the retail investor is not that big. Institutions make up the bulk of the trading. So to kind of say that dumb money, you know, individual investors are dumb money and they're the ones driving the market, maybe at times, but you know, institutions are aircraft carriers and, and individual investors are like the, the, the kayak that's hanging off the side of the aircraft carrier, right? Let, let's call them drones these days because they could be faster and zip around a little bit, right? In and out, quick decisions. A, a, a canoe, like a, a kayak seems like it's just stuck in the water to me. But that's because I don't like kayaks, I guess. So there you go. That could be. How would a canoe be different than a kayak? I don't know. They're the same thing to me. But I, you, I thought you said canoe, then you said kayak. I don't know what you said about being in the water next to an aircraft carrier. I think can, I think a kayak would be faster though, because aren't you getting are you paddling sort of both ways? Isn't a canoe where you sort of paddle on one side and then you paddle on the other? Yeah, I, I don't want to know anything about paddling anywhere. If you haven't figured that out about me, all right, send emails. Let us know. We like getting emails. Jay, any uh... paddling? Oh, I'm sure a kayak's faster. <laughs> Actually, uh, a friend of ours who listens to the podcast has like a kayak that he can pedal, right? And uh, you know who you are. He lives on a lake and he goes out fishing in his kayak and he pedals out. And one time he and I were uh, actually fishing in the ocean off of Florida. We might've been two miles out and there was a guy pedaling his kayak. So kayaks, I'm sure are much faster. I mean, I guess you could put a, a motor on it too. Yeah, maybe a motorboat versus a... <laughs> sure. Yeah. That's what I would do. He knows that he never asked me to go kayaking with him. I think he knows the answer to that. You wouldn't. Okay. All right. Well, send us emails on that. <laughs> we'll look forward to those. Jay, any, uh, any recommendations for the, the audience this week? Well, absolutely. A favorite of ours came out uh, uh, on Hulu uh, yesterday, which would have been uh, June 22nd. It is the second season of The Bear is now streaming on Hulu. They released all episodes at once. I'm halfway through it already. It's only been out a day. All right. I haven't watched any of them yet. As good as the first season? Better? It's uh, it's a little different. Same, you know, the characters are obviously the same, but they're doing a lot more. So for those of you that don't know, it's a show about a, a guy that kind of takes over his brother's sandwich shop after previously running, you know, a Michelin star restaurant somewhere else. And he... And he's kind of dealing with all the ins and outs of a sandwich shop, a famous sandwich shop in Chicago versus, uh, you know, the, the well-oiled machinery of a French brigade uh, kitchen. So uh, anyway, he uh, in this one, Derek, it's more of a fo- they seem so far to be focusing more on the food and the expertise. It's a little like how um, I get the sense how like I don't know if you're a watcher of Yellowstone, another favorite of mine. And if I've never recommended that one, shame on me. It's a great show. Um, how in like later seasons of Yellowstone, they actually bring in some real like ranchers and real uh, horse trainers and stuff like that. I feel like they're bringing in a little bit of kind of some expertise and really focusing more on some of the food. And, uh, you know, I don't want to give away too much, but I'm, I'm enjoying it, but it's got a little different feel. 
then the first season that was all about the chaos of a kitchen during uh, during the food rush hour. All right, Jay, you stole my recommendation, but I'll, I'll jump on. I haven't watched the second season, but I did watch the first season. I thought it was really good. It's on Hulu, so it's worth checking out. I have not... I feel like I've watched the Yellowstone without watching it because my wife has it on at different times and it's sort of a running joke because she'll have on. And I'm like, oh, is this a new one? She's like, no, no, it's, she just has it on. <laughs> I will tell you. Listen, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a female aspect to the, uh, to Yellowstone. Like there's a character in Yellowstone that the ladies seem to really uh, enjoy watching. It's the character of Rip. I don't know who that is. I'm sure, I'm sure she's good. I know. Sorry, your wife does. I guarantee I'll, it. I'll ask her. I, it was funny, though, because I, I live in Scottsdale, Arizona, and they there's a place called Westworld that's not too far from here. And they do some concerts there, but they have – anyway, it's a – I knew they were filming uh, for Yellowstone. I think they were doing a bunch of stuff. It was supposed to be a rodeo, um, and they were filming. And I knew that. I remember I told somebody – Oh yeah, Yellowstone was just out here, and they they were like, "You didn't tell us." And I don't know if you would have been able to go and watch, but yeah, they were out they were out filming. You saw the saw the crews and stuff. So it's a good one. It's a good one. Yeah, I feel like I've seen it though because it's always on the house. I hear that theme song. I feel like uh, you you watch Yellowstone like I watch hockey. That's a good analogy, Jay. Yep. <laughs> are you are you referencing other yeah are you watching uh game six of the nhl playoffs tonight is, is hockey still going no it's not it's over the the i didn't think las so. vegas won the at least i knew that one all right jay uh i, thought, I was like i thought somebody won it all already no they did they did you'll have to wait till next year to see your florida panthers uh, i'll watch the reruns um don't do that <laughs> don't do that all right jay <laughs> thanks for coming on again everyone will talk to you all next week see ya